Greetings and welcome to our listeners. This is the PATC podcast. Public Agency Training Council is the country's largest and longest running provider of seminars for law enforcement, fire, jail, and other similar public officials. We really appreciate you being here to listen to this podcast. My name is Mark Waterfill. I am the president and owner of Public Agency Training Council. With me is my co-host, David Broadway. David, would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm delighted to. Uh, my name is David Broadway. I was a city cop for 10 years. From there, I went to the Florida Department of Law Enforcement for 24 years. During my tenure at uh, FDLE, Florida Department of Law Enforcement, I taught adjunct in the academy and developed several investigative manuals for the DEA. Had the privilege to be a guest speaker at many conferences for the Drug Enforcement Administrations. Have testified as an expert witness in federal and state court. During that past 25 years, I've taught adjunct, adjunct at several universities in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice. And uh, used to be a lifeguard and a dude cowboy on a ranch in Lake Tahoe, Nevada. So um, this Florida boy being a dude... Uh, uh, on a ranch. Uh, Michael, we'll talk about that sometime. Fantastic. Uh, our special guest this episode is Mike Heisinger. Mike, please tell our audience about your background. Well, my background in law enforcement started at the Johnson County Sheriff's Office in Indiana. It's just south of Indianapolis, if nobody's familiar with that area. There, I spent 15 years working for the Johnson County Sheriff's Office in several different capacities, working as a deputy, working as an FTO, SWAT officer, narcotics officer, motorcycle officer, did a lot of different things, did, got a lot of different training. And I got a lot of different training from PATC back then as well. So from there, I went to the University of Indianapolis after I retired. I was the FTO coordinator there, and then I was also the detective and SWAT team leader. Got the opportunity to come back home to New Mexico, where I'm actually from, uh, Alamogordo, New Mexico. I worked for the Alamogordo Police Department for a couple of years, and then had the opportunity to become the chief police at the Tularosa Police Department, which is 13 miles north of there. Now I'm enjoying traveling around the country, teaching for PATC, doing a lot of different trainings, uh, having a lot of fun, and I'm also a general contractor in New Mexico, so just got my hat in several different rings. <laughs> Tell our audience the classes that you teach. So I teach the FTO certification. I teach supervising and managing the FTO unit, response to active shooter and terrorism. And then I just took on teaching the SRO school, the school resource officer. Wonderful, wonderful. Uh, in your FTO training, can you give us an idea of uh, what is presented there? So in the FTO training, it's presented um, a lot of different avenues of training the incoming trainees, rookies, boots, whatever you want to call them. And a lot of different agencies are calling officers in training, OITs. Different ways to train, different ways to mitigate and reduce liability for the department because that is FTO is one of the most important positions in the in the agency. And in doing that, talking about how to teach not only their trainees, but also their administrators, how to listen to them and understand that there are certain things that have to be done a certain way uh, in order to reduce and mitigate liability for the department. I uh, also set up scenarios where you run a bunch of different scenarios. I run a uh, portion that has to deal with uh, case law as well. It's an in-depth class. We have a lot of fun. A lot of, a lot of learning happens. And that's a four and a half day class, right? That's correct. I would assume that since you are focused on field training, that you have your finger on the pulse of generational issues that, you know, each generation that's coming up because you're mostly working with young people. Would that be correct? That is correct. I've recently instituted how to train the millennial generation coming up. So it's getting a lot of different info from the classes. So I'm learning at the same time that they are. 
teaching an adjunct at Western Carolina University, teaching those young guns to get, you know, that want to get into law enforcement, about only about 10 out of 150 now. But one of the things I talk about is their acclimation to screen time and what they're missing out there in dynamic information from reading body language, reading kind of the vibe of what's going on in the situation they're in. Do you address that any at all? And if so, how? Just to kind of divorce themselves some from um, from stagnant information into dynamic information. Yeah, so that's why I do a lot of the scenario training, scenario-based training, because you can't really learn by watching. You can't watch videos. You can't watch YouTube videos, anything like that, and learn how to do the job. You actually have to do it. So setting up scenarios, teaching them how to set scenarios up and run them properly to where it goes from easy to hard and just graduating them through each step of that. With winning situations, not, I mean, I think when I was in training, sir, I talked about if you don't have a win situation, then why practice for it? You know, exactly. if, if you can do right and win. And um, I forgot to mention during my intro that I was a founding member of the um, the anti-terrorist and fugitive um, apprehension squad in Florida. And uh, one of the things, you know, it, it was easy to gravitate in that. And it's good to hear you really um, hit, hit the nail on this one to get into one 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 upmanship in a scenario training. You say, oh, we'll get Dan on this one. That type of thing and not making it to where if Dan did the right thing, the outcome is different. The outcome is better. Right. Yeah. So it's always mm -hmm. a, it's a win situation, but they have to work for it. Yes, sir. They have Thank to do the right steps. They have to move the mm -hmm. right ways. So what are some of the issues of uh, training uh, people in their early twenties these days? It is the, I like to call it the why generation. Why do mm -hmm. I have to do it this way? Why do I have to do it that way? <laughs> um, that's that's one of the biggest things that has to be accomplished is for them to understand why they have to do it a certain way in order to get the desired result. So I basically tell everybody in class, I ask them, I say, have you ever dealt with anybody that is high-functioning autistic? And the reason I bring that up is my youngest son is high-functioning autism, has high-functioning autism, or it used to be called Asperger's, so on the spectrum. Everything has to be given in a logical reason as to why something has to be done a certain way. If it's not a logical reason, then they don't understand. That's the same way this generation is. If it's not logical reason, and they want to understand, they want to do the work, they want to under help. This generation's huge on helping, but they want to know why they have to do it a certain way. They can't do it a, the way they want to. So that's what, one of the easiest things to go through. I've also heard that teaching this generation to speak to people is often difficult because it, it is a gaming, screen time, uh, phones generation. Do you deal with that in your class? Yeah, so that's the uh, the social aspect of being this generation is everything's through text messages, through talking through a through a gaming system, whatever else. I, I don't know anything about that because I don't do it. But amen, <laughs> so I, brother. That's why I have to ask my kid, my my youngest. <laughs> so yeah, so the social aspect of it. And that's why I recommend everybody in my class go through. You know, if they haven't been through, they need to go through it as well as their their trainees is put them through a critical incident training, the CIT training. So dealing with talking to people, do you really learn how to talk to people that way? Or if they have the option to work in a jail before they go out to the road, go work in the jail. You learn how to talk to people working in a jail. So you can't be on your phone. You can't text back and forth or Great anything point. like that. Michael, I have one other thing on that too is projection. You don't have to project to a screen, you know, that, that you're happy right. to talk to the person. And uh, like I said in the last interview, I said, you know, tell your face you're interested in the guy. You know, tell your body language because they, you're going to have to elicit information someday. And um, it's great to hear instructors like you talk about these types of things because when it gets down to it sometimes, it's all about what can I elicit from you and am I the type of guy you want to talk to? 
Right, exactly. And having the correct body language, and we go over that in class as well, is having the correct body language of sitting up and sitting forward, being interested in the conversation, not sitting back, not crossing your arms, not crossing your feet, the you know the kinesic method of inter- interview and interrogation, learning to have your body posture the correct way in order to display that you are in the conversation. Tell us about your active shooter class. What happens there? So active shooter class, we go over different types of active shooters, how they move towards investigating, determining an active shooter prior to the situation coming about, any kind of keys, any kind of um, structures, anything like that, the terrorism side of things, how they're recruiting, how they're going through, you know, looking for people to recruit into the jihad or whatever you want to call it, or any kind of terrorism there is, the domestic terroristic side of things. It's just, there's a lot of in-depth information that goes on in a two-day class that you know, I have to get a lot out in two days, so... <laughs> And it's a much needed, unfortunately, uh, much needed class and uh, one that we're happy to have you uh, teaching for us. Yeah, one of the things that I really like to do is with the active shooter uh, in terrorism class is to understand how each department is responding to an active shooter situation. We we break down and digest um, YouTube videos of the Uvalde active shooter mm-hmm. situation. We go through that entire video, break it down. Mm-hmm. We go through the Nashville, the latest ones that have happened, the one that was in Louisville where the officer was shot and that kind of stuff. We really kind of break everything down and figure out what is the best approach to this. We Monday morning quarterback it basically just to have a better understanding and better way to train for the future. This is Mark Waterfill, the president and owner of Public Agency Training Council, and I wanted to let you know about two wonderful weeks that we will be having in Las Vegas. In the week of November 6th, we will have several classes at the Palace Station. Then, during the week of December 11th, we will have another round of classes at Treasure Island Resort on the Strip. So check out our website at patc.com. I'm sure that you'll find a class that you'll truly enjoy, and we look forward to seeing you in Las Vegas this week. And is it proper to say that both in the Nashville and Louisville situations that uh, going in on the on the aggressive attack is thought of as the better solution? Yes. So the laid back approach is not the way to do it. The waiting for four people to show up and move in, you know, moving in diamond formation, that's old school. That's that's Columbine after Columbine era situation. The way to do it now is you move in. As soon as you get there, whether you have somebody with you or not, you lone wolf it if you have to, or you have somebody with you and you, you know, make announcements. This is where I'm going in. This is what I'm doing. You move on indicators, you move on stimulus. So it's, you, you got to get in there. You got to handle the situation. And there is no warning, put the gun down, anything like that. You see somebody with a gun in their hand, you take them. You're done. You know, Mike, it's such a, it's such a diversion for, say, old schoolers like me. And, you know, the case at uh, Marjorie Stone down in Broward County, I think back. And um, when I was coming up, I retired in 08. Prior to that, you know, active shooter, you waited for that team member to get there. You waited for, a, a you know, a, a diamond shape. And um, and I wonder, I, I don't know through the training records or whatever, but the deputy that was charged down there and was found not guilty recently, I wonder if that p- played into his mind. He was 60 years old. So current training is so important. Best practices are so important. Could you address that? So best practice, the, the way I was taught, I've been teaching active shooter stuff since I was on the SWAT team, uh, early 2000s. Working with that, we started out with the diamond formation. Then we went to a two-man formation. Then we went to the solo formation. So the solo formation is what I learned when I became an active shooter instructor. Uh, actually certified, the SWAT team was always responsible for teaching the active shooter stuff. What I went through, I went through the FLETSI, uh, the Federal Law Enforcement Education Training Center. I went through their training, and it was the lone wolf. 
So moving on the stimulus, moving on the indicators and moving at a methodical pace instead of running to the stimulus. Running to the stimulus was the old adage. You hear the shots being fired, anything like that, or screaming in a certain location. You run to that location. Moving at a methodical pace is moving at an operational tempo, is moving you know quick enough to get to the location, but still having a level and solid pl- shooting platform. Uh, the reason for that is you can move, you can check doors back and forth You can as you're going down the hallway. Um, and in doing that, you eliminate the fact that if there's a second shooter, they're popping out behind you and shooting you in the back. It's safer. You get there better. Your breathing is more controlled. When you get there, then you can make your, you know, your dialed shot that you need to make. That's a great point to address on the um, biochemical things going on in your body during an active shooter. Because um, rookie coming in, the general public doesn't really take that into consideration. But there's a whole lot of mechanics going on in your body as you're approaching a shoot situation. Absolutely. Yeah. Your blood pressure is going up, your heart rate's going up, everything else. And that's one of the things that I teach a lot in class is tactical breathing and any kind of tactical situation, CQB, anything like that. I teach tactical breathing, teach people how to breathe properly to lower that blood pressure, lower that heart rate to where you're cognizant of everything that's going on. Your auditory exclusion goes away, everything else, tunnel vision goes away. You can actually see and hear what's going on and move through the situation in a proper manner to where it's safest for you and best for everybody else. Nicely put. Thank you, sir. Bet. And I'm sure that many of the principles in your active shooter class apply as well to your school resource officer training. Uh, tell our audience about that. School resource, I just picked that up. Uh, my first class is going to be is scheduled for November uh, in Indianapolis. So that'll be a that'll be a good time. Uh, with the school resource situations, there's a lot of different things as far as hands-on, what you can do with kids, what you can't do with kids, how you have to handle situations according to not only the law, but also to the basically the laws of the schools and the, the situation where you are. There's certain things that go on that, you know, in schools that teachers aren't allowed to put their hands on kids. If a kid's fighting with somebody, what whatever else. Yes, you still have a lawful duty and authority to break the fight up and you have to put hands on, you got to put hands on. But what the active shooter side of things for the school resource is very important because a lot of times it's school resources, one or two people, and they know the school inside and out. So they're going to be, they're going to have the better understanding of how the building flows, where to go, you know, what to do, that kind of stuff. So they're going to be point of contact right away. And they have to understand that and that's a very important position to be in. Boy, it sure is, and just more and more important all the time. I was in Columbus, Ohio yesterday kicking off a class at the Columbus Police Department, and the night before, a 13-year-old uh, shot uh, someone who tragically died, and it just brings home that, unfortunately, guns are in the hands of younger and younger people all the time. They are, and dealing with that situation is, I mean, it's becoming more apparent in the news and everywhere else that want stricter gun laws, this and that, whatever else. What it comes down to is parents need to be cognizant and need to go back to the old school way of doing things is teach your kids the right way to do things and the right way to treat people and the right manner to do things in. Discipline your child, then do it. You know? <laughs> that's, I mean, we got to go back to the old school way of doing things in order to get this country back on track as far as that goes. What uh, kind of employment opportunities are there for people who are interested in being a school resource officer? Does pretty much every school corporation employ school resource officers at this point? There's a lot that still do not. Uh, They don't have a school resource officer situation. So most of the school resource officers are through uh, the local agency. So like in Alamogordo, 
Mm -hmm. uh, where I live, the school resource officers are actually Alamogordo employees, but they're paid their salary through the school. So the school kicks in the money to the, the police department and pays their salary, but they're assigned there. Um, there's other locations that have school resource officers that are, the department is built at the school. That That's where the chief is. It's where everybody is. They're their own entity, like in Center Grove or in Greenwood, Indiana. And how long were you at SRO uh, there? So before school resource officers were really a thing, we used to work part-time. We work our days off at Center Grove High School so or at the Center Grove schools. Um, mm -hmm. And that was my that was my education as far as school, being a school resource officer and figuring out what I could and could not do. <laughs> so Wow. And that and was you said, about four years. And then you said in your, in your spare time, you're building houses. Is that right? Yes, sir. I'm a general contractor in southern New Mexico. And how's that going? That's going great. Yeah, busy. <laughs> Good. I was in Texas with Mike uh, earlier this year. We had a great time. Got to take in an Astros game. And, go uh, Astros. Mike, we, they, there you go. And, and we appreciate our relationship with you. You're an excellent instructor. Your reviews are always outstanding. And I'm sure that our attendees at our classes really appreciate all the hard work that you put in in making your presentations. And thank you so much for joining us on this PATC podcast. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast and also to continue my service for not only my community, but the communities across the country and doing these trainings. One.